In this episode, my guest and I are covering a new topic for Trip Hacks DC, tips for moving to and living in Washington, D.C. Now, I know a lot of listeners tune into this podcast for travel tips because you're planning a trip or vacation. And if that's you, I hope you'll stick around and listen to this episode anyway for a few reasons. The first is that over the past few years, there's been a trend of people wanting to travel to places and experience them like a local. Now, I'm never going to be a person to tell you to skip all of the touristy stuff in D.C., because honestly, a lot of it is amazing, and it would be a shame not to experience it. But I do think an itinerary that's a healthy mix of stuff that tourists mostly do and stuff that locals mostly do can actually make for the most rewarding kind of trip. So if you listen to this episode, hopefully it will give you some insight into what it's like to experience D.C. as a local. The second reason I hope you'll stick around and listen is for the element of curiosity. Some of the most common questions I get on my tours, aside from where to eat and which museums are my favorite, are questions about what it's like to live in D.C. What neighborhood do I live in? How much is my rent? Do I ride the metro everywhere? And what do I do for fun? And of course, if you're tuned in because you are actually planning to move to D.C., well, I hope you get some value from this discussion. It's a big move and comes with some challenges for sure, but can also be totally worth it. One last thing to mention is that we mostly talk about Washington, D.C., the city, in this episode. The city only makes up about 10% of the total D.C. metro area by population. So I don't want people to think there aren't great places where you can live in Maryland and Virginia, too. Both of those states have some fantastic neighborhoods and great spots to live. But this is already one of the longest podcast episodes I've recorded. So for the sake of time, we didn't cover Maryland and Virginia in depth. So I just want to make sure it's clear. We're not saying you can or should only consider living in the city. It's just the area we both know best and for the sake of time, what we focused on. Okay, so with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. Today, I'm joined by John Coleman, and we are going to chat about moving to Washington, D.C., John is a real estate agent who has dedicated much of his time to perfecting the home buying process. He's also the host of Coffee with Coleman, a YouTube channel where he loves to discuss Washington, D.C., real estate, business, and all that good stuff. So, John, welcome to Trip Hacks, D.C. Thanks, Rob. And you even got my tagline right. All that good stuff. So my hope for this episode is that we'll cover three major topics. The first is which neighborhood to pick. The second is how much it costs to live here and how much to budget. And then the third is some of the things that you and I know because we live here, but someone who's new to the city might not know, just some of the miscellaneous uh, tips for folks who are moving here. Sound good? Let's make it happen. All right, excellent. So let's start with the first, the which neighborhood to pick. Now, I make videos uh, on Trip Hacks DC primarily for a visitor audience, so folks who are visiting DC. But I've come to learn over the past few years that people also watch the videos if they're thinking of moving to DC. And the first question that I always get asked by folks who have found themselves in that situation is, which neighborhood is the best? And I think there's a lot of things to consider. I'll rattle off some things, and then you can react to them. So, for example, where's your job located? Where's your spouse's job located? 
Do you have kids? Uh, are they going, are they in school? Are they school age? Are you looking for a quieter neighborhood or closer to the nightlife? And so what are your thoughts on all of these? And what's even a good place to start for someone who is brand new to this process? It's a great question. And one of the first things I think it's important to do is set a couple of the basic guidelines of what a person's looking for. One of the most important things and the thing that's going to drive it, and we'll get to this in a second a little bit more, is cost. So understanding what your costs are, uh, what you want to spend on a monthly budget, what that looks like, and then that's going to help dictate some neighborhoods as it is. So if you get what the price that you're willing to spend is, and then also if you understand the basics of what you're looking for, like do you need two bedrooms, three bedrooms, some of that's going to naturally start drawing the map of what areas are going to be accessible for your pocketbook because D.C. is an expensive city. I'm from Detroit, and so like D.C. is like super – it's like the third most expensive city after uh, San Francisco and New York. So even like Chicago, we're looking down at them because it's so much more expensive here. Yeah, I think it's interesting when folks come on the tour, sometimes out of curiosity, they'll ask about the cost of living. And it's all about perspective. So someone from, who's from San Francisco, San Jose, I'll tell them what I pay in rent and they'll say, ah, oh, pretty cheap. Someone from Detroit, like you said, or Chicago, I tell them and they, you know, nearly fall over because they are shocked to learn. 100%. So let me ask you a pretty generic question that probably doesn't have a simple answer. Uh, if someone wanted to rent, say, a two-bedroom apartment, what kind of what kind of prices are they looking at? So depending on where in the city you are, and a general rule of thumb is you can throw your map around, let's just call it the White House. And then the further you move away from the White House, and this is definitely true if you're moving north or if you're moving east, prices are likely to come down as you get further away. West, that's not quite the case. There's not as much room going west anyways, but that's when you hit Georgetown and some really expensive areas. So if you go west, just plan it being expensive across the board. Um, when you go east, you're going to hit Capitol Hill. You're going to hit Trinidad. You're going to hit a whole bunch of different areas that could be kind of expensive, but not quite as expensive as downtown. And then when you go north, there's a wide breadth of neighborhoods of like what you can be expecting and going from there. In terms of a cost for a two-bedroom you're probably looking at something between low end of $2,000 up to draw your own budget. Like I know people that would rent places for $15,000, $20,000 a month. Yeah, I think the fifteen twenty thousand is probably on the far end of the tail of the of the distribution there. I could tell you what two-bedroom cost in the building where I used to live uh, when I was a renter. I, I think the folks who lived across the hall from me paid, I believe, $3,500 for a two-bedroom. Uh, and so I, I was in a one-bedroom at the time, but that building, you know, it had a bunch of different floor plans. And so they might have paid 3500 and someone on a higher floor might have paid 4000 And so I think it's important and this isn't very satisfying for people who are looking for a number because people want a number so that they can decide if they can afford it or not. And to say, well, you can get it as low as 2000 if you make some sacrifices or you can pay whatever you want if you're willing to get the penthouse view. If you're planning like 28 to 36, you're going to give yourself options and you're going to give yourself options in some neighborhoods that might be kind of exciting to you. You'll be able to spend more for newer, nicer, big view kind of stuff. But if you try to stay in that budget, I think you'll find stuff. So you rattled off a whole bunch of neighborhoods as you were describing which places are more expensive and less expensive. And people who are new to D.C. might not recognize all of them. I think most folks will probably recognize Georgetown. Uh, it's one of the famous neighborhoods. John and Jackie Kennedy live there. We have the Georgetown University if you're a sports fan. And so is Georgetown a good neighborhood for someone who's brand new to the city? Or would you suggest to your clients maybe to seek elsewhere? 
Georgetown's is fine. Like it's living in DC is a lot, a lot like anything else in the sense of you move to an area, you start to get acclimated to it and it becomes your favorite and then nothing else lives up to your favorite. And so you get a little blinded by your own desire to be in the neighborhood you're in. I've never lived in Georgetown. It's It's got that vibe and that mystique that a lot of people seek when they come to D.C., but it's not my vibe and mystique. However, it's really cool. It's historic. It's got some cobblestone streets. It's these tight roads when you go around, and all those stores and everything makes it a lot of fun to be around down there. So I'll go hang out down there. I've never lived down there, but I think Georgetown is a fun area if you want to be close to kind of like that old school vibe DC. My biggest complaint with Georgetown is it's not that metro accessible. So if you're looking for metro accessibility, it makes that area a little bit tough. Yeah, it's a challenge for transportation. I agree. And I think you made an excellent point, which is that the vibe is really key. So not everyone is looking for the same vibe. And that's important to understand when you're thinking about the fact that there is no single best neighborhood, right? So another thing is people want me as the tour guide or you as the real estate agent to say, this is the best neighborhood. And if you can afford it, you should live there. Just like they want uh, someone who does food content to say, this is the best restaurant. And when you visit, you should eat there. And it's just not that simple because there's way more choices than you could possibly imagine. Definitely. And, you know, I I live on Capitol Hill. I live on the east side, closer to RFK Stadium, which is the now defunct Washington football team stadium. Uh, and I love my neighborhood. I've been there for over a decade and I, I would I don't know if I could afford to rebuy my house again now, but I'm happy I bought when I did, and I love my neighbors and what's around us. So Capitol Hill is old and historic, much like Georgetown, but it has a very different vibe. So I've been doing these Trip Hex DC live walks, for example, and I've been going to different neighborhoods and just walking around and showing off the different areas. And I already did several in Capitol Hill, and I did one in Georgetown, and I'll probably do more in both places. And it's just fascinating to me that even though they are both historic and they both have those Victorian-style 1800s row houses, they feel very different. And so it's important to not just assume something about an area, but to actually experience it for yourself. Yeah, and some people come in town and they're like, I don't want to share walls with somebody, which can get to be kind of tough. But Hill, Georgetown, those kind of neighborhoods, you're going to share walls. We got row houses. That's what we do. If you want standalone houses, you got to go a little bit further out, and there's different neighborhoods for that. Neighborhoods with row houses tend to be closer to the center of the city, uh, over by U Street, 14th Street, Northwest, and U Street Northwest. There's a whole bunch of restaurants, a whole bunch of bars, a whole bunch of nightlife. So someone who really wants the nightlife will probably find that an area like that will be much more suitable for them than someone who wants a quiet area, who wants to get to sleep at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And so it's important to understand what you want when you're thinking about these things. Yeah, all you whippersnappers moving to D.C., you'll probably want to be by Logan, U Street, Columbia Heights. Those kind of areas is where you're able to... Get done with work, change your clothes, and then get to a happy hour in minutes. And when I was in my formative years and I was looking to go out every Friday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, that would be the perfect area for it because you have so much accessibility. And that's where really a lot of my friends were. And I think if you go on Wikipedia, 
there are something like 100 neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. does not have official neighborhood boundaries like, say, Chicago or some other cities. So it's always a little subjective about where a neighborhood begins and ends. But you can get a general sense of where it's located in the city. And we're not going to cover them all in this podcast. That's way too much for a single episode. But where would you go or where would you suggest your clients go to read about all these neighborhoods, to learn about them as they're trying to decide, hey, what might be best for me? So I feel like there's some very good content online. I guess that's where I plug Coffee with Coleman. But even I don't have a very wide breadth of like neighborhood videos. Like I've started to create some and there'll be more coming out across time because I think it's a very helpful thing to go around and do walking tours like you do to show people what's going on. There's blog posts, there's neighborhood association, Facebook pages, and you can understand kind of what starts to make the neighborhood tick. I don't think anything replaces feet to pavement getting through and making things happen. Like being able to go to a neighborhood, catch brunch, talk with a few friends that live in the neighborhood or just locals that live in the neighborhood, you're going to get a better experience of what it's like than trying to read it. And here's the thing is DC is rapidly changing. So if you get someone's opinion of what a neighborhood was like five years ago, there's like 18 different restaurants and things going on that weren't there when that person was there. And you got to take it in real time. So I think it's important feet to pavement and make your own assumptions of what you think about the neighborhood. Uh, I was thinking about that recently because 10 years ago, 2011, the Washington Nationals had their first winning season. They went to the playoffs and some friends and I went to uh, a, a bar that no longer exists near the ballpark, Justin's Cafe, uh, RIP, uh, great place. But at the time, it was the only place you could go near the ballpark. And so if someone hadn't been to the neighborhood in the last decade, they might say, I don't like that neighborhood. There's nowhere to eat or there's no restaurants, which is not true anymore. Uh, it's changed over the last decade. And so I do agree. You have to be up to date with your content and don't rely on somebody who the last time they visited was five years ago to tell you uh, about what it's like now. It seems like we get two or three new Michelin star restaurants every single year uh, around here. And we have a lot of chefs that are targeting this market as a market they want to do. And the chefs that are here that are doing well are very successful in opening up other things. So like you're talking about being down in Navy Yard, like Eric Bruner Yang, who started Maketo here over on 8th Street and a number of other places has ABC Pony down there, which is an amazing place. And there's so many places like that that are just fantastic. Also why it's nearly impossible to make good food content because it's constantly changing and places are opening and closing and new chefs and it's a lot to keep up with. And one thing I do want to say is that it's it can be a different experience visiting a neighborhood from living in a neighborhood. So while I agree with you 100% that you should do feet on the ground, shoe leather, uh, you know, exploration, all that stuff, going to Georgetown at 11 a.m. on Sunday for brunch is going to be a little different than waking up there on Monday morning um, when you live there. And so be careful when you're visiting, especially as an out-of-towner, as a tourist, that you're trying to be conscious of, hey, is this something that people actually do on a regular basis, or is it just because I'm here on Sunday at 11 a.m.? Yeah, and the vice versa. Like, You want to make sure that, one, people are considerate about noise. So if you're going to an area like Georgetown and you're right on M Street, that's going to be super busy. And if you're overlooking that street and you're not a morning person, you might become a morning person whether you like it or not. Same can go for U Street or any of those other areas. Now, in terms of the other thing people consider is the commute. And if you go and visit there on Sunday at 10 a.m., you'll be like, oh, there's not much traffic from this place. This looks great. A lot of times I recommend people at least pull your commute up on Google Maps at that time in the morning so you can see what the traffic pattern looks like that you'd need to deal with. Because 
traffic in D.C. can bunker you down real quick. Yeah, it's hard to say post-March 2020 any of this stuff because a lot of people in Washington, D.C. are white-collar office workers. A lot of them are still working at home, although anecdotally, just from my experience biking around, walking around, there's tons of traffic. Um, people who stopped using Metro, switched to their car, it, it's a mess. And so it's going to be hard to know exactly what it's going to be like in 2022 or 2023 and beyond. But in the past, in the before times, commuting was a huge part of the decision process. And I always told people, just live, when you first move to D.C., just live near your job. It, that makes the decision easy. You don't have to spend time reading about 100 neighborhoods and visiting and making all these tough decisions. Just the first place you land, just land near your job and then try to figure it out once you're here. Totally. Totally. So when people move to D.C., do you find that most people like to start with renting or are they calling you up, uh, calling up a real estate agent and saying, hey, I'm moving to D.C., I want to buy, help me out here? What's your general experience with that? So I get a little bit of both. If you are moving to D.C. for the first time or if you're moving to D.C. and you want to purchase, number one, it's going to be a lot easier if you've lived in D.C. at some point because you can make some more assumptions with confidence. If you're making that decision to purchase from far away, and I actually just put out a video on this, is if you understand the neighborhoods and what those are like, you are at an advantage. Because at that point, we're going to be working as a team to help understand the quality of the house. We can talk about what the block is like and we can do that. But there's not this overarching of like, do I want to be in this neighborhood? And if you can't get that question answered, I'd probably recommend renting for a year and trying to figure it out. I just had someone that we moved over to Arlington that moved in from Colorado and they were pushing to maybe buy and they just didn't have the confidence. I was like, stop pushing yourselves. Measure twice and cut once. Move here for a year. I know it's not ideal with kids, but move here for a year, be in a rental house and then start to understand the neighborhoods. And then we can make a good decision one year later to figure out what's going on for you guys, because this is going to be your 15, 20 year house. Let's let's get it right. Let's not rush it. There's other people that I have that are moving here from Texas right now where they spent a whole weekend coming in and exploring neighborhoods and they were ready to make some decisions based on that. But theirs was a little bit easier because they wanted to be by DuPont. They want to be by the action. They've been living in like kind of the countryside of Texas and being in D.C., they wanted to absorb real city. So doing that was important. Yeah, probably not the best for you for me to say this as well, but I agree to rent for a year and then make a decision. Now, when I moved back to D.C. after college, uh, that's exactly what I did. So I was renting in an area where I did not wind up staying because it wasn't a great vibe, not a great fit. But every Saturday, I would get on my bike and I would ride around to different neighborhoods, get a cup of coffee at one of the local coffee shops. And that gave me a, a lot more confidence to say, OK, this is this is a place I want to seek out versus now nah, this is not for me. This isn't my vibe. And then I don't have to waste time trying to find a place there or, you know, spreading myself too thin during the process of, of looking for a new place. Yeah, no, I, I 100 percent agree with you. And. As much as I want to sell everybody home right away, sometimes it's about creating that relationship long term and making like there's lots of people that move to the city that I recommend different apartment buildings and neighborhoods and stuff like that. And we could just start creating that relationship. A lot of the, we're a relationship based business, like we're 85 percent referral based. So it's uh, important for us to make those connections. So if you're moving to the city and you just have general questions, you can reach out too. that's an important good thing to know is just you don't have to be buying in real time. But starting to understand that stuff is going to be super helpful. 
Okay, so let's dig deeper on prices, costs, budgets. I know this is a very important part of the process. I already asked you about the cost of a two-bedroom apartment. So now let me ask you about buying. Uh, and, of course, it's going to be different depending on your neighborhood. Let's start with your neighborhood, Capitol Hill. Say somebody wants, a, let's say, a modest, not too fancy, but, you know, livable, three-bedroom. What are they looking at price-wise? So three-bedroom, two-bath? or Three bedrooms and I don't know what the standard is, two bathrooms, something okay. like that. Okay. So three bedrooms, two baths. If you're planning somewhere in the low end of probably like 750, and again, we can go into that scale of like wildly, but I think if you plan on 750 to 1.1 million is probably about right. Now, there's ways to play around with this because if remember that further east conversation we had earlier, the further east you go on Capitol Hill is where the prices start coming down. If you go to an area like Kingman Park, which feels sort of like Capitol Hill, but it's not, there's like these invisible lines of all these neighborhoods. And like sometimes you can cross these lines and the prices are a little bit cheaper, but it still feels like it's part of the neighborhood. You can, you can get a little bit better. So I'd say if you were planning on seven to 1.1 in my general region-ish area of Capitol Hill, you would probably find a three bedroom, two bath. That's a, and that's a pretty big range. I mean, seven hundred fifty thousand to one point one million. That's that's a big range. That's <laughs> quite a chunk of money. But I think the other thing that's important is that most folks have a hard time really grasping where these neighborhood boundaries start and end, or the invisible boundaries, as you Me say. Too. And so people, when they visit, or even when they live here and they're just exploring, they tend to visit the more desirable areas. So if I was uh, going to Capitol Hill, I might be going because I want to visit the Eastern Market or the Flea Market. And my guess is that the houses immediately adjacent to that are very desirable, much more expensive. And so you walk around, you look at the signs, you, you know, look it up on, uh, you Google it and you look it up and you say, oh, you know, $2 million, I can't afford this. I'll never be able to afford this. And that's where an agent really becomes valuable because you know about the spots that are great, but that I'm not exploring on a Saturday afternoon because it's not directly adjacent to what I'm going to. Exactly. And so the question usually is, is like, all right, so you're walking through Eastern Market. You fell in love with this place. It's out of your budget. Well, what'd you like about it? Well, what makes this place exciting? And if you have an understanding of what makes it exciting, we can start to take what makes that exciting and try to replicate it at cheaper price points in other neighborhoods around the district. And people really quickly get used to the prices around here. So as much as that was a big range, that that range is equally equating to the range we talked about in rent earlier. So if you're looking to buy a place for that's $850,000 and you're putting $100,000 down, your payment's somewhere in that thirty-five to 4000 mark. So really quick, you can understand the rent-to-own case starts to present itself because the rents are high. Well, they kind of support the prices of the sales too. I agree with you. People get used to the prices pretty quick. Um, not immediately. Uh, de- people definitely have Sticker shock when they get here. Uh, I had sticker shock when I came back here. And yeah, you get over it really quick because you realize there's nothing you can do about it. Comparing it to where you used to live and saying, I could get this for a fraction of the price where I used to live doesn't do anything. Uh, it's not really a valuable conversation. So just accepting the reality is really a good first step uh, to getting where you want to go. I think what a lot of people do, especially when they're younger, including me, um, they just can't afford a $3,500 apartment or even a one bedroom apartment might be out of their price range. So they go with roommates. And I think that for some people who think, oh, roommates are only for college or once you graduate, you're you're done with that. 
they don't consider it right away, but it's really how a lot of people make it work around here. That's how I made it work. I don't know about you, but when I first moved to D.C., I lived uh, – the first place I had was like a two-bedroom plus sunroom in the Mount Vernon Triangle area. I was the proud recipient of the person living in the sunroom. Um, and then we moved to a group house where we had four or five people in the house and like each person had their own room, but like we shared the house to make ends meet and make it work. It wasn't glamorous, but it was, it was what it was. It's important because you might be looking at a studio apartment, for example, and the price might be $1,800 and you think that's outrageous. How, who can possibly afford this? And it's true. A lot of people can't afford something like that, especially when you're young, you're in your entry level, first job out of college, that sort of thing. But then you look at, well, okay. If we have a $2,500 apartment split between two people, well, now it's dropped down to $1,250, and maybe we can swing that. And so it kind of even gets potentially even less with more people in the house. If you have a four- or five-bedroom house uh, renting for $5,000, divide that by five, okay, now that's even less. And so that's how a lot of people make do. And I I did a video recently. What I talked about there is things I wish I knew in my 20s about buying a house in D.C., and the thing I wish I would have thought about at that time and had a little bit more money to make it happen was like, could I purchase a house in the neighborhood I am in now, um, get it at a value that's pretty decent and then rent to my roommates. And I have clients that have done this. They like buy a house. They have scraped some pennies together. They use a low down payment loan. Uh, and then they get a house and then they get roommates and essentially they're living for free. So as much as you got trip hacking, going on here. People are house hacking here in DC. So they're living for free and other people are paying down their mortgage to set them up in a better financial spot for when they're in their late 20s, early 30s, and they want to sell that place or kick them out and have the place to themselves. I've heard about that too. Getting creative when you think about this is often how you can make it work. Mm -hmm. So beyond the price of rent, beyond the price of your mortgage or your condo association fee, there's going to be some other costs when it comes to housing and just living in general. So I want to run through some of those so people have a general idea when they're getting to D.C. So the first, obviously, is utilities. Uh, You pay your rent, but then many landlords will also require that you pay your own electric bill and gas bill and water bill. And so, and this is especially true if you own a home like you do, you're on the hook for everything. So can you just walk through what all the bills are and kind of what people can generally expect to pay? For sure. So you're going to have your electricity, you're going to have your gas, you're going to have your cable and internet, and then you're going to have your water. First of all, these homes are very old. They're very energy inefficient. You can do things to make them more efficient, but they're never going to be as energy efficient as some of these houses that are built with brand new LEED certifications out in the countryside. You are typically going to heat with gas. Sometimes it's electric, but usually it's gas in DC and you're going to cool with electric because that's how AC typically works. So you're going to have in the summer a really high electric bill and probably a lower gas bill. And then when you hit the winter, you're going to have a really high gas bill and probably a low electric bill. And depending on the size of your house and what you do and how much cooking you do is going to depend on what the bills are. But I think my electric bill on average is probably about a hundred and hundred and hundred and fifty dollars per month. My water bill is probably like 30 and then gas right now is probably like 45 or so. And I think it's really important that you live in an old house. Um, there are some newer buildings in D.C. So that apartment I was referencing earlier, that was in a new building. I think it was built in the 2010s, and it did not have gas. So it was all electric. The heat, the A.C. was electric. The stove was electric. There was no gas at all. And so the only bills that I had there were electric and water. And 
Sorry, John, but my, my electric bill was a lot lower than yours because <laughs> the building was efficient. I mean, at least more efficient. And so, you know, the water was probably half a year water bill. The electric was probably half a year electric bill. Now, this was smaller square footage, but it's it's important to appreciate these things that, yeah, the rent might be a little bit higher because it's a newer building and they advertise it as, you know, luxury or whatever. But there are some benefits to that, too, which is that you might have lower utility costs. Definitely. And if you're buying a condo, the other thing to keep in mind is what is that extra pesky fee that comes along with it, Rob? Oh, the condo association fee. There yeah, you so go. I, I do live in a condo and um, there is a monthly condo association fee and I don't mind it because I we get a lot of great services from it. And so uh, my advice, and perhaps you can agree or disagree with this, is to actually look at the condo association's budget when you're looking to buy and just see what they're spending their money on. And a lot of times um, you might say, oh, I didn't realize that you know this was something that we had to pay for and other times you might say hey what's that why are we paying for this thing that might not seem necessary definitely you're just gonna assume that you're gonna wrap that overall cost in your monthly mortgage payment you don't pay it with your mortgage you pay it separately but your total cost of living because that's there they're never gonna let you have a month off of paying your dues but it's a lot of people want to aim for buildings with low hoas and as much as it's nice not to pay more money the ability to have money in reserves if the building needs to fix something. Have a front desk person to bring in packages. Package theft is a real thing in D.C. Uh, and then also you might have pools, elevators. All that stuff keeps money to keep up. And so you're just paying your, your bit to make sure that you have that essentials of your building. Yeah, maybe people have seen that Mark Rober video where he puts the glitter bomb in the uh, package and then people steal it off his porch. And, yeah, that happens uh, probably in every city, to be honest. And yep. so to me, front desk is great. That's a great amenity that I would be happy to pay for. And in my condo building, we do have and pay for. So yeah, I, but some people might not value that because they say, oh, I'll just I'll just get my stuff delivered to my office or I don't order stuff online. I don't care about package delivery or anything like that. So it, it's just different depending on the person. Definitely. Now, another important part of your expense is your transportation. And so this could be if you drive, if you have a car, if you don't drive, if you're going to be using Metro. Uh, I mostly bike around, so my transportation costs are extremely low, at least relative to other people who I've spoken to. So what are some of the transportation costs that you tell your clients about when they ask about it? We talked about traffic earlier, and traffic is real. And if you can avoid it, that's great. Uh, I, If you can live in an area where you can bike or walk or I have some friends that run to work because they a lot of places will have showers and gyms so you can shower once you get there. They enjoy that. Uh, but what a lot of people concentrate on is the public transportation, so metro and bus. And this is a truth moment, Rob. I haven't taken the metro in over four and a half or five years. Like, I just haven't been on it. Um, for my job, I'm driving around constantly. And then additionally, Uber and Lyft and all that stuff have made life super inexpensive in terms of going around. So if I'm going to go out with my wife for the night, we could go and pay like three bucks each to take a Metro or we can pay 10 bucks total to take a uh, trip up to U Street via Uber or Lyft. So Uber and Lyft are ones that we use. We also have a lot of bike share stuff. So maybe you don't want to have your own bike and keep it somewhere or you just want to hop a ride. There's uh, DC bike share, so capital bike share, which is very helpful. And I see these scooters all over the place, too. You have a di much different perspective than I do. You drive most places as a real estate agent, which I totally get. Uh, Metro, I tell people to budget about $2.50 per ride. It's a little more complicated because it depends how far you're going and what time of day and that sort of sort of thing. Uh, Uber and Lyft is interesting because it used to be extremely cheap. And I've gotten reports this entire year, 2021, that people are rather upset that it's gotten very expensive. Actually, I've been hearing that, too. I've been hearing the trade-off now of people. It's... 
what's old is new, right? So like people are now being like, Uber and Lyft are too expensive. Oh my God, cabs are reliable and they're picking me up on time and they're getting me there fast. So may, maybe the shift back to old school cab is the way to go. I think people follow the dollar usually. Yeah, Uber, I believe, has lost many billions of dollars with a B, billions of dollars over the years, and now they're traded on the stock exchange and probably their shareholders are not going to tolerate that for much longer. So I, I've been telling people don't expect the super cheap Uber and Lyft to come back. I think this might be the new reality for that. Now, as a car owner, uh, what are your costs? Obviously, if you bought it with a loan, you might have to pay back your loan, your monthly costs. There's parking costs in D.C. There's insurance. What other costs do people have to consider? I mean, parking is a real cost. So if you're living in one of the buildings downtown or if you're in uh, an apartment building, there, it's usually not going to be included with your rent. Some places might be, but you're going to need to vet this out. And renting a parking spot can be anywhere from 100 to $300 per month, depending on where you are and what it is. And the, yeah, I said $300 a month. That could get you like a studio in some cities, but that's just where you're going to park your car on like a surface lot in the alley and here in D.C. Um, so parking, super important. Electric cars are becoming much, much more prominent in this area. I drive an electric car and I love it. Um, and that's cheaper than normal gas too. But if you're going to have an electric car and you need to plug in, you're going to need to think about off-street parking more because you're going to want to charge. And that's going to be an important piece of it too. I think parking is going to become ever more important as people need to charge their cars more at home. So that's something I look at and talk about with clients when they're going through houses is like, if you can get a place with dedicated parking, I think that's going to become ever more important. So I can confirm, um, I do have a condo, and I'm a parking space landlord. I don't know if you knew that, John. Uh, I rent out my parking space for $225 per month. Uh, so that's a, that's a nice little yeah. chunk of change. And so, you know, not owning a car means I don't have any of those costs. Plus, I get to make an extra $225 per month on the parking space. But for the person who's renting it, it means that they have an additional $225 per month expense. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, well, for, I don't need a garage. I'll just park it on the street. And just like you said, package theft is a problem. You know, these are the unpleasant things we don't like to think about too often, but car break-ins uh, happen too. If you park your car on the street, it could get scratched up. It, you know, things can happen that uh, if you have a garage space or an off-street space, your car's just going to be a lot safer. Yeah. If you're street parking, one, it's going to be dependent on neighborhood. Uh, some neighborhoods have ample amount of street parking. Some don't. So you'll want to evaluate that when you're looking at places. The other thing you're going to want to do is if you are going to do street parking, break-ins are real. When you move to the big city, or maybe you're moving big city, big city, but don't leave stuff out. Like make your car as least desirable as possible to want to break in. Like they'd have to like want to break your window to then essentially take nothing. The times when I've had most issues with my car is actually when I was being a dumb dumb and left my doors unlocked. And the person was nice enough. They didn't break anything, but they rummaged through all my stuff. And I, I didn't, I don't keep anything in there, but, uh, but that's one thing to take in consideration is don't give anybody a reason to want to touch your car. So these are all things you have to consider. Uh, now, I want to talk about food and what people can expect. Um, people who visit often notice that restaurants are more expensive than back home. And you also have to pay for groceries, probably, if you aren't going to be eating out for every meal. Now, I haven't. I, I travel a little bit myself, and I think it really just depends. You can't compare apples to oranges when it comes to this stuff. Uh, so to me, you know, you go to a supermarket in dc compared to a supermarket in detroit the prices might be a little higher but they're not going to be like double the price right correct and similarly if you're shopping at whole foods your bill's going to be a little more expensive than if you're, if you're shopping at aldi and so what kind of you know what do you spend on groceries and where do you like to shop john 
I go with convenience. Uh, my neighborhood had a brand new Safeway put in this past year, and I go there. They have a poutine bar at my Safeway, by the way, so it's, it's a Fancy. nice little thing to have. Yeah, it's it'll it'll put you to sleep once you get home. Our average groceries, we here here's a very urban yuppie thing that we do, and I know a lot of people that do it, so maybe it's good for people to know about it. Is we do um, meal delivery service at home. So we have like a territory or a factor or something like that. And a lot of my lunches and some of my dinners come from that. And since me and my wife both do that to make life convenient and to, you know, get a diverse range of food, our grocery bill is probably 80 bucks per week. And that's just picking up some extra snacks and water and stuff like that that we need. Uh, when we weren't doing that, I'd say we probably were budgeting around three fifty per month for groceries and stuff, but we also weren't shopping with too much of a budget in mind on it. That was just us going around grabbing stuff, getting a couple bottles of wine here and there can make that go up, but that's usually what we would budget for. Yeah, same. I think about $100 a week for two people, and so you can multiply that if you have more people in your family. I, again, convenience factor. I also go to the closest supermarket. I don't go out of my way to go to the Aldi, which is much cheaper, but also farther away, and I don't go to you know the most expensive specialty shop either. I just kind of go middle of the road. The popular areas tend to have a lot of grocery stores. As we're sitting here recording this in my office, we have about three grocery stores within about an eight-minute walk from here. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, though, is some areas are in the city aren't as lucky to have as many grocery stores, and that's something that the city talks about, and I hope that we get more action in, is we have some of these areas that are kind of food deserts, quote-unquote, that don't have as much access to grocery stores. So as we're doing more opportunities, I hope we're going to put more over there, but at the same time, it's something you need to be conscious of. Uh, of when you go look at a house, I always say pull up Google, look at your closest you know, coffee shop, look at your closest uh, grocery store, and then look at what, what kind of restaurants you have. And you can usually get a pretty quick idea of what's going to be around you. One more thing to note on budget before we move on to our final topic of discussion is I think it's important to understand that some things, the price of some things is relative and will be more expensive in an area like D.C. And the prices of other things are universal and they will be the same no matter where you live. And the most obvious example of this is Amazon. Amazon doesn't care if you live in Washington, D.C., doesn't care if you live in Nebraska or in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. The price of whatever you buy is going to be the exact same price uh, everywhere. And so in that sense, it might actually be a little bit more affordable to live in D.C., especially if you have a higher you know, big city income because that stuff that is kind of universally priced is going to be the same everywhere. Now, other things like restaurants probably going to be a little bit more expensive in D.C., and so that's a relative price. So do you go out a lot, eat out a lot, go to bars, happy hours? Uh, I love to go out to bars and happy hours. Uh, I like to hang out with friends, and we have such an amazing – like, we, we share a love for Ethiopian food. And so, like, I took my wife on our first date over on Ethiopic here on 8th Street, and there's so much diversity in the food options that we have around here – that whether you want to eat cheap, medium, or expensive, you have options. If you want to spend way too much money and $400 a person on a meal, you have that opportunity. I don't know if I would, but you could. Um, if you want to go get an $8 meal down towards the mall, well, you've got an entire video dedicated to cheap eats around the mall. So, like, you have opportunities to do however you want. But, yeah, I mean, these restaurants, their rent, too, is also very high. They, uh, they have to pay their workers a certain living wage and making sure that we're, we're working and, and doing all that 
it's going to cost more money, and that's translated to the price of the food that you're going to eat here. Okay. Now, let's move on to the final topic of discussion, which are some of the other things that people might not consider when they're moving to D.C., but that, you know, as locals, we have some opinions about, I think. And the first one is one that we've already touched on when it came to the price of things, but it's the the age-old car versus no car debate. And I bring this up because Washington, D.C. is not New York City. It's not Manhattan. In Manhattan, the majority of people do not drive. The majority of people do not have a car. That's not true in D.C. In D.C., the statistic is that approximately one-third of households do not have a car. I fall into the one-third. You fall into the two-thirds. Now, for you, because of your job, it just makes sense. Uh, and so I think that that's totally reasonable. For me, I um, am mostly down on the National Mall. I can get there uh, on Capital Bike Share, ride my own bike. Sometimes I even walk. And so it's not necessary for me. So what are some of the things you advise your clients when they ask you about this question? Depending on where you're going to live. I think that that's a big piece of it. If you're going to live in an area that's like far further north, like Petworth or Tacoma Park, like those areas, you're probably going to want a car because there's a higher likelihood that you're going to want to leave your neighborhood and go to other neighborhoods. If, if you're down in Navy Yard or Southwest Waterfront or down near the mall, you have a lot of the stuff you're ever going to need at your fingertips. So it's more likely you're going to stay local to where you are. Yeah. So locals in DC tend to really love their neighborhoods and a lot of people don't leave their neighborhood that often. And I think that that's one thing that people often find surprising or that they don't expect is they think, oh, well, if you live in D.C., you're hopping on the metro every weekend, you're going to a new neighborhood, you're exploring all these places. And typically speaking, and I'm guilty of this too, is that a lot of my time is spent in my own neighborhood. And that's why I always tell people when they ask for restaurant recommendations, hey, I can tell you about every single restaurant in my own neighborhood. I can't tell you about any restaurant anywhere else because I so rarely leave. Yeah, and that's going to be true for a lot of people. People are going to have their biases. But you do know some really good restaurants. And I've seen your video and you make good recommendations. So I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> and rental car is still an option. So just because I don't own a car doesn't mean I don't ever drive anywhere. And so in the before times, you used to be able to get amazing weekend rental car rates, you know, go out to the airport, pick up your rental car for next to nothing. That's not quite the case anymore because of this rental car shortage and all that. Maybe that'll get resolved soon enough, but I haven't rented a car in a little while for that reason. But uh, assuming that it goes back to the way it was before, that's always an option too. Definitely. Okay. So let's talk about taxes. Nobody wants to really talk about taxes, but I think Washington, D.C. sometimes gets a reputation for being a, a high tax area and it's higher than some places. It's not the highest, I don't think. And so I think people should just understand what they're getting themselves into. Uh, so a few different types of taxes that you'll need to know about. Income tax, a property tax if you uh, own a home. Sales tax you're going to have to deal with if you buy anything, which applies to visitors and locals. And so what do you tell your clients when they ask you, hey, is Washington, D.C. a high tax place? Income tax, yes, D.C. tends to be higher property tax were actually shockingly low in comparison to even the surrounding areas. Like our, our property taxes are much cheaper than Maryland and they're cheaper than Virginia too. So we get a little bit of a reprieve there as homeowners if you're going to be living in D.C. If you're a renter, you don't get that advantage. You're just going to pay rent. Uh, but income tax is real and that's that's been a topic of conversation as more jobs become remote. Like Maybe they don't want to live in an area that has high income tax. Maybe you want to go to an area with lower income tax. I think if you look it up, it's pretty basic math around what you're going to be doing for your income taxes and then paying your 
Like, I don't know. Sales tax, I just kind of ignore. It's always just kind of the cost of the sale. And I just, it is what it is at that point. Yeah. So income tax is a progressive. So it's like the federal income tax where you have the brackets and the more you make, the higher your uh, brackets rate. And so in general, I think if you look at the numbers, most people will probably expect to pay around 6% of their income in income tax. So uh, for example, Florida and Texas are the famous no tax, no income, state income tax states. And so that's 6% percentage points higher than those places. But I don't think it's the highest of all the places. And the other thing is that Washington, D.C., because it's not a state, um, you know, save that discussion for another time, is that you don't have the state tax and the county tax and the city tax uh, that all stack up on each other. And so you have to really think about that is if you're living in a place where you pay federal income tax and state income tax and county income tax and city income tax, you got to combine those all together because we only have one. Yep. Now, sales tax uh, can be a little bit confusing because there's different rates for all different kinds of stuff. So I, I wrote this down here. So uh, sales tax on groceries is 0%. Alcohol, 10.25%. That's where all my money's going. Says soft drinks, 8%. Sugary soft drinks, I should say, 8%. And everything else, 6%. So if you walk into the supermarket, for example, and you buy some groceries, so you buy um, you know, chicken breasts, that would be taxed at 0%. If you buy some Coke, that would be taxed at 8%. You buy a bottle of wine, 10.25%. And um pack of toilet paper, 6%. I had no idea that we were taxed different rates like that on things. This is, I'm learning things new today on Trip Hacks DC. This is amazing. Yeah, so check out your receipt the next time you go. I think you'll be fascinated, John, to see uh, how things are taxed differently. Okay, so 2021, a lot of people are working remote from home. Solid internet connection is absolutely essential. And there's some good news and some bad news on this front. The good news is that you can get a very solid internet connection in D.C. The not-so-good news is that there's not a lot of choices. And so you, depending on where you live, you might be locked into only one provider. And that's rather unfortunate. So in D.C., there are um, a few different providers. So you have Comcast. They're everywhere. They're also called Xfinity, I think. They rebranded. You have Verizon Fios. There are many places, but not everywhere. You have a company called RCN, which is limited to some neighborhoods. They're similar to Comcast. It's like a cable TV company that also provides internet. You have a new company called Starry, uh, which is limited to specific buildings in specific neighborhoods. I believe they're like a 5G type provider where they put a big antenna on the building's roof and then everybody in the building gets access to it. One thing I will say, do not get Verizon DSL if they try to sell that to you. That is a woefully outdated tech and <laughs> will not get you a good Zoom call quality or anything like that. Uh, I have Verizon Fios. I have the gigabit internet connection, which I can, now that I've had it for several years, I can't imagine ever having anything less. And I'm always shocked when I watch YouTube and see people complaining about their slow internet speed because to me it's just like you got to have solid connection yeah i think my for both my office and my house i think i've got it where i'm usually 300 plus megabytes per second uh download and then somewhere around like 100 megabytes per second upload so you can get fast internet and but there are outages with any of those servicers but i don't think that's specific to dc i think that's specific to those companies <laughs> The reason I said it's limited to where you live is, unfortunately, some places you might not have any choice. So one of the places I lived, you could get either Comcast or you could get uh, Verizon DSL, which is the one I told you not to get. And so because you're not going to choose that, you basically have only one option. And whatever the price is, you're going to pay. And you try to fight with the cable company. People know how painful that process can be. And so it's rather unfortunate. The fewer choices means that you might have the, – the prices are not – 
going to be especially cheap. I can say that my gigabit connection is great, but it's not especially cheap. And so it's just worth knowing that that's going to be the situation. As far as cell phones go, there's three major brands. There's Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. And then there's a whole bunch of smaller brands that use those networks. In my experience, it's 2021. They're all equally as good as each other. I think in the past, um, Verizon had more towers in D.C. It was maybe the first to really blanket the city. And so a lot of people in the old days used to say, oh, if you live in D.C., you got to get Verizon. Um, nowadays, I think they're all pretty much equally good. D.C. specific, sometimes you get around some of these bigger government buildings and your cell phone service will get a little bit wonky sometimes. Generally speaking, if you're going around D.C. in the neighborhoods and just around the general like touristy areas or where people live, it's strong reception. You're going to have no problems. I think the other reason people used to like Verizon, and you're, as a non-Metro rider, this doesn't matter to you, is that they were also the first to be in the Metro tunnels. That was and huge. So, I was still riding when, when that was going on. And that was back when you were actually talking on the phone in the Metro, not you know on your smartphone texting or on uh, the Washington Post reading the news or something like that. And so now I think they've all gotten towers uh, or receivers in the stations and yep. so it, whichever one you have uh, they should all be equally good i agree with you it's it's not perfect so i tried to do a live stream from the national zoo last month and uh, didn't work it was terrible i ended up having to take it down because it was just buffering the whole time but in most you know parts of the city um it's perfectly fine in the middle of rock creek park turns out not so great yeah maybe video streaming tougher however general trying to find something on your phone and doing something like that good email and text messages no problem whatsoever Okay, so last topic of discussion, the fun part, is what locals do for fun. So Trip Hacks DC, I've got lots of tips about what visitors can do for fun. And people sometimes want to know, well, what about you guys? What do you do when you live here? What do you do for fun? Because I doubt you're going on the Monuments Tour every weekend, uh, which is true. Although it can still be a fun thing to do if you haven't done it in a while. It can. I, I need to get on some tours because I, I want to become – when you get to D.C., you don't avoid them all, but you just don't find a reason to go down there so often because the times you go down there is you're going to have people come visit and you're going to be like the first few times you're going to go with your guests to go visit. After about the third or fourth visit from from friends and family and all that stuff, you're going to start giving them like a map of like, OK, this is where you go downtown. I'm not going to the mall again. I've, I've seen it. But you do that for too long and you start to miss out on like I haven't been to the African-American Museum yet. And and that one is one that's been renowned and I need to check that out. There's other new exhibits in the American History Museum that I haven't been to yet. So D.C. locals don't take enough advantage of that. Um, D.C. locals are big brunchers. So understanding the brunch scene, I don't get to do as much brunch because I'm usually working on the weekends. But the brunch scene is real. There's good deals on food and drink. And it's a very big social scene. So if you want to go out over on like 14th Street or on like 17th Street, Agora is a great brunch spot. I don't know if you've been to that one. But that's all you That's my my wife used to hit that one up all the time. Um, so brunch is a big thing. But then there's also things for every hobby you can imagine. Uh, I grew up sailing. DC sail is something that's down on the Southwest waterfront. They have some boats and you can learn to sail and you can take boats out and do all that stuff. There's bike groups. I mean, as a avid biker, you know that there's tons of people going around and there's fitness groups, kickball groups, like whatever you, whatever you aspire to get in tune with, you're going to find a subset of people that want to do it with you. I do sometimes get in trouble. Uh, when it comes to brunch, because I don't care for brunch and I don't go out of my way to recommend it to people. But the, the reason is because 
most people who work in restaurants will tell you the best food is not during brunch. People often don't like to work the brunch shift because it's often heavy on alcohol and the customers can be a little difficult. But the key is what you said, it's the social scene. And so you're not going to brunch to get the best food. You know, Michelin-starred restaurants are not earning their stars on brunch or breakfast foods. They're earning them on their, their dinner menus. But the social scene is really the key to that. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% right. And DC is such a melting pot, too, where some of your social scenes going to be leaning on your past. So I grew up in Detroit. I went to the University of Michigan. I'm very involved with the University of Michigan Alumni Association here, and that's where I find a lot of my friends. So we'll do dog park days. We'll go to the Kennedy Center for a show. We find reasons to get together and try all the cool things DC has to offer. And if you're associating with a group like that, sometimes they plan the fun for you. And then if there's something that really hits with you, then you can start exploring that even more. Yeah, college alumni is huge in DC. So if you went to college, that's a great opportunity. Bigger colleges tend to have bigger uh, groups. I went to a small college. So we do have some alumni in DC and do have occasional events, but like University of Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, Texas, those are going to have huge alumni groups and really active. So you can definitely find some folks to get involved with. Yeah. And if, if you went to, uh, I, we're a basketball school now in Michigan. We're not really a football school. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but one of the things that we like to do is we have game watches every Saturday. So we have a set bar and this goes for any team. Like if you have a, a college basketball, a pro basketball, certainly NFL, certainly college football, there's game watch bars where you get to go and you can watch it with other people that like it. And that's another funny thing about DC, actually. Like you go, like you like to go to Nats games. When you go to Nats games, it's unlike other cities of like you go there and you're surrounded by all of your local fans. The national stadium is usually filled with at least a quarter of the opposite fans. And that reigns true with the Caps and the Washington football team. I found that to be more true 10 years ago. Now that the Nationals have won a World Series. That's picked, true. We got picked up quite a few fans. Band, and the same with the Caps in that round, too. Like when you get winning teams, people like to buy winning swag. But I think tried and true, people like to still rep their home city. So like when I go to a Caps game, I'll wear a Caps shirt if it's anyone but the Detroit Red Wings. But if they're going, uh, they're playing the Red Wings that day probably beating the Red Wings that day. I'm going to wear my, my Red Wings stuff. And that is a cool thing about D.C. and the question of what do locals do. Sports is huge, uh, especially if you're a sports fan. And you don't have to be a sports fan of every single sport. I'm primarily baseball. I don't care for the NFL. Um, I don't particularly like the owner of the football team, as I think many locals don't uh, either. But you can get into one sport. You can get into all the sports. And we have a, a team from every single major league, baseball, soccer, football, basketball, hockey, plus some lesser-known leagues. So women's soccer, ultimate frisbee. Um, I believe there was going to be a major league rugby team, but uh, that, that kind of fell through during during COVID. But I do have an entire podcast episode about pro sports in D.C. where we go into greater depth on this topic. And tennis, you tennis fans, there there is an Open here that's a national circuit Open. And then also there's the Washington Castles, who's a professional uh, world team tennis where they bring in like Serena and Venus Williams and they play like a couple nights in July each year, which is fun. And the sports scene is pretty close to uh, downtown. So you have the Capitals and the Wizards. They play at Capital One Arena. That's right downtown, right in Chinatown. You have the Nationals. They play a few stops south on the Green Line and as does uh, 
DC United, the soccer team, they played Audie Field, uh, which is right across the street from Nationals Park. So the sports are really concentrated. Now the Washington football team, they play out in Maryland, so that's the exception to that. But if you're a sports fan, you can get a lot of sports, and it's really convenient, too. Yeah, and the, the ever-going question is, where's that stadium going to be? Because they're always talking about moving it from Landover, Maryland, which is a pain in the butt to get to. That's the worst game to get to. Like I just don't go to them just because there's too much of a hassle. Uh, you asked me previously if I had seen Hamilton at the Kennedy Center. I did not, but... The reason I bring this up is because if you're into theater, you can go to shows like that. You can see Hamilton live at the Kennedy Center, and D.C. has a surprisingly thriving theater scene. It's not New York City. It's not Broadway. It's not London, but it's surprisingly good. But we get all the big shows, and whether it's at the Kennedy Center or one of the smaller theaters, like there's a lot of good opportunities to take in and stuff like that. So we like to see a show every once in a while. Getting in and going to the Kennedy Center, that's, you know, you have to at least do it once just to experience it. Uh, and if you really enjoy it, you can go again. But even the Kennedy Center, they actually, I was just over there. They built out an entirely new wing with an outdoor amphitheater and this like bar kind of seating kind of wine garden area. And it was really cool. So I know that before we go to our next show, like we're going to go over there early, hang out, get a little bit of food and a couple cocktails before we go in. But it's fun. Yeah, Kennedy Center, they have theater. They have musical theater, obviously, like Hamilton. They have Washington National Orchestra, if you're into that kind of music. They have opera. I know former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a huge opera, used to go to the Kennedy Center all the time. They have the Millennium Stage, which is free. Uh, it's kind of like in the hallway, but it's like free shows. Um, you know, they, in the before times, it was every day, and we'll, we'll see post-COVID what the schedule is, but that's an opportunity. The new outdoor area is fantastic. And the other thing is, so that's just one theater. There are a bunch of theaters in D.C. We haven't even talked about concerts. I have an entire podcast episode about live music. I mean, D.C. is actually known for its amazing live music scene. Yeah. I mean, 930 Club's a, a staple, and then I enjoy that the people that were running 930 Club opened up the anthem down in the southwest waterfront, uh, or the wharf, as we want to call it these days. That's one of the coolest venues I've ever been in. Like, I forget who I saw there. I think it was Lord. I think I saw Lord there. Well-run place, great lighting, great aesthetic, and I can't wait to get another show there again. So Foo Fighters, they played the first ever show at Anthem. So that's like the caliber of artists that you'll see at the Anthem. So you're not going to get like a Beyonce there, but you're going to get like a pretty well-known, pretty... um big band like Foo Fighters, and of course they have local roots, so they're going to play a show there. But that's that's the kind of show. But also at The Wharf, there are actually three music venues. There's the Anthem, which is the big one, and then there's like a medium-sized one, and then there's a small one. So you don't have to just go to the big shows that you need to get your tickets for in advance. You can often like walk up day of, see who's playing, and go to one of those smaller shows too. Yeah, 100%. All right, John. So those are all some great ideas uh, for folks who are moving to D.C. or living in D.C. and want to get out and have some fun. And so we've reached about an hour, and I just want to say thank you for spending the time to record the first in-person podcast episode that I've done in a year and a half. I'm really glad to have you here with me and talk about this stuff. And so folks who want to follow you, watch Coffee with Coleman, where can they do all that stuff? Well, Coffee with Coleman YouTube page, I'm sure we'll link it somewhere around here. I uh, would love to have you guys follow along. Uh, you know, I, I can't compete with the kind of content that you put out there. But for our, our niche audience that's thinking about, you know, how to buy a house with zero down, what it's like to live in different parts of D.C. And heck, every once in a while I throw out fun ones like I did the best beer gardens of D.C., 
go ahead and follow me along. It's just Coffee with Coleman. I got a website too, but I don't update as much. So if you stay on the YouTube channel, you're going to be doing pretty good. Yes, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And I will just say that if you've never bought a home before, uh, it can be an overwhelming process and you want somebody who you can trust on your side. And so you watch John's videos and you immediately know, yeah, I can trust this guy. So definitely check it out. And even if you're not thinking about buying soon, maybe you will at some point and someday and you'll want to, you'll want to know what's up. Yeah. Just subscribe and then you'll slowly get enough knowledge. So when it's time, it's time. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.